Hey everyone, today it's all about bones. Well, skulls in particular. We're going to talk about what we can learn by studying skulls, how scientists use skulls to understand the lives of extinct species, and of course, the answer to my burning question. Why are eye sockets so big? Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. I'm Dr. Jen, and this is the first episode of the new Wild Connection podcast. Today, we're talking about skulls, what we can learn about animals from their skulls, and why those eye sockets are sometimes so darn big. To help me today, I've got a special guest, Dr. Julie Meachin, a close friend, colleague, and all-around superstar vertebrate paleontologist and person. As a bonus, we'll get to hear the latest on the wolf puppy jour and what she and other scientists are learning about this now extinct species. I'll put links to Dr. Meachin's website and articles in the show notes. And don't forget to check out the original artwork I made for this episode. All right, let's get started. And if you hear a little yowling in the background, well, that's just Senor Antonio Botones wanting to be included. When I'm not teaching at the University of Arizona, I'm usually out hiking trying to spot some critter. Typically, the ones I find are alive and well. But one day, I was walking through Honeybee Canyon in Oro Valley, Arizona, and I saw a lot of fur on the ground. I stopped and looked around and saw tucked away against a creosote bush the remains of what had been a male deer. All that was left was the spine, the ribs, and the skull. The rest had been picked clean. I was pretty sure a mountain lion had been responsible for the demise of this male, but since there was no meat left, I felt really comfortable approaching. I was fascinated, and I wanted the skull. I have a thing for bones, and fortunately for me, so do a lot of my friends. Otherwise, I would just be weird. I immediately called my good friend, fellow scientist, and artist, Ramona. She paints many things, including skulls. I'll put a link to her site, Omnivore's Gratitude, in the show notes and post a picture as well. I knew that I could count on her to help especially since I offered her the spine and ribs in exchange for helping me retrieve and keep the skull. You can watch a video of this adventure on my YouTube channel, Wild Connection TV. Needless to say, I have the skull and a few others. And even though I'm a biologist and I know that we can tell a lot about an animal from its skull, I was immensely curious about why eye sockets are so big. I mean, really huge even when the eyes themselves might be pretty small. To help me get to the bottom of this is Dr. Julie Meachin. Listen, folks, I am so fortunate to have snagged an interview with Dr. Julie Meachin, a vertebrate paleontologist specializing in Ice Age carnivores. She's an associate professor of anatomy at Des Moines University, and her and her collaborators have been in the news a lot lately. We're going to get to all of the exciting discoveries that she's making a little bit later in the episode. All right, so let's get started. I am so excited to have you on the very first episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I'm a vertebrate paleontologist, which means that I study animals that have been extinct for a long time. Um, and I like to specialize in uh, animals that have big teeth and lots of fur. So mammalian carnivores um, and the things that I really have been doing a lot of work on lately include um, dogs from all over North America, although I also have plenty of experience with cats, too. Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of your recent discoveries a little later in the episode, but I'm curious because a lot of people are fascinated with um, carnivores 
And I'm wondering what drew you to become a vertebrate paleontologist? Well, that's a really great question. It was kind of this circuitous route. It was nothing that, you know, I saw when I was a kid or anything. I mean, I've always loved mammals um, and I loved those old taxidermied animals in museums, but I never really had a preference for carnivores as a kid. I think my preference for carnivores started when I was a master student at the University of Florida and I was getting my master's degree in paleontology and working in the vertebrate paleontology department there. And I was also a collections assistant and I would just open up drawers and look at different things. And when I opened up the drawer full of saber tooth cat skulls, I was sold. Like I knew that's what I wanted to work on for the rest of my career. That's fantastic. And, you know, I'm fascinated with skulls as well, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to have you on. But before we start talking about skulls, how diverse they are, and of course, what's going on with those eye sockets, um, I have a question that I like to ask all of my guests. Um, This show, you know, it's about connection, specifically our connection with other species and nature. And so I'm wondering, do you have a special way that you uh, feel connected to nature? Yeah, I really love, I'm sort of an animal voyeur, you know, I really love watching animals in nature and I just love being still and watching them. And I'm kind of fortunate that I live in a city, I live in Des Moines, Iowa, but in my backyard uh, is this ravine with all these trees and I have so many animals back there. There are deer, there are raccoons, there are possums, there are foxes. And sometimes I'll just go outside and there will be a deer staring me in the face and and I will just, you know, stare at this deer and watch it. And even better if I'm looking out my window and they don't even know that I see them, but I'll just watch them as long as I can. And I just love just observing what they do, even if it's mundane. You know, you and I are, are really similar in that. Um, I like to go for walks every day and I'll often walk the same path because I get to know the animals that live along that route. And, you know, you mentioned being able to watch or or surreptitiously watch another animal without them knowing it is really exciting. And I'm wondering, have you ever had a situation where you were watching an animal and they caught you watching them and they seemed a little put off by it? Yeah, actually, this is a really funny story. So my partner, John, and I were in Grand Teton a couple of a couple of summers ago, right after my field season, and we were just taking a little vacation. And it was after dinner and we went down to the lake and we were just sort of sitting by the lake. And as we got up to walk back to our cabin, we looked over and there was a little fox and the fox was just going to town cleaning himself like I mean just like (laughs) licking everywhere you know his genitals his tail and we were just watching him and then all of a sudden this poor little fox like realized somebody was watching him and looked up and totally looked scandalized and we just thought it was so funny it was great we took a bunch of pictures of the fox licking his genitals Oh my God, that is hilarious. You know, I have a few stories like that of my own, but none nearly as spectacular. So thank you for sharing that. So as I mentioned, I have this uh, deep affection for skulls as well. And in researching for this show, I discovered that there is a wall of skulls at the California Academy of Science Museum, which also has a 3D gallery you can view online. And I'm going to put um, a a link to the site on on the show notes. But, you know, the big feature wall is this uh, gigantic wall of sea lion skulls, which was collected by someone else who who also had a love of skulls. And um, one of the things that people will notice if they go look at the gallery is is that there's this incredible diversity of skulls. So. So are there some basic categories of skulls depending on the type of animal? Yeah, that's a great question. So us vertebrate morphologists um, or vertebrate paleontologists, animals who study vertebrates, um, do have some classification systems for different skulls. So for example, 
we classify skulls by how many holes they have, which is kind <laughs> of funny, but it's true. And I'm not talking about their eye socket, which is a hole, or the hole for the spinal cord, which is called the foramen magnum. I'm talking about these holes actually behind the eye socket, in the bones behind the eye socket. And they vary depending upon what kind of animal they are. And uh, we call the holes windows. And the name for window in Latin is fenestra. So we call these skull fenestrations. And there's a couple different kinds. And they really mostly follow along um, a, a relationships of these animals. And so animals that have two holes in their skull um, are called diapsids. So di meaning two and apsid meaning openings. And those are basically animals that are related to reptiles and birds. So most reptiles and birds come from that diapsid lineage. Animals that have one hole behind their eye socket um, are called synapsids. Um, and synapsids include mammals and all of their relatives uh, that came before them. And then there's a group that has no holes in their skull. And they're actually a subset of the diapsids. And I think they lost their holes mostly for a protective purpose. And those include some turtles. Wow. I wish I had had you as my vertebrate anatomy professor because you so simply and clearly explain that. Um, and I always struggled to understand the difference between the categories of skulls, but now I'm just never going to forget that. And so this actually brings up a question for me. Um, and I'm wondering, is the, the diapsid, the one with the two holes, then considered like the ancestral condition? I mean, I'm not sure if that's the right phrase to use or the right language, but in terms of the tree of life uh, and and diversity, um, you know, evolutionary history, is, is that like the original state? Um, that's a great question. And I, I'm not sure if it's the original state for all um, I want to say amniotes, so animals that come from an egg that have a shell on them, right? Right. So, so I think it actually, I think that that divergence split pretty early in amniotes, but it actually you bringing that up kind of makes me think of another issue. And that is that in those animals that have the two holes in their skulls, there are so many animals in that category that have secondarily modified their skulls for doing different things. So for example, many animals in that group use something called cranial kinesis, which basically means that their skulls move. Um, and some of those animals include like snakes, which actually can walk their jaws over their prey or birds which do this thing called inertial feeding where they kind of like put their mouth up in the air and like kind of gulp over their food almost in a way like snakes. So their skulls open up in weird ways that other animals can't do. That's incredible. And, you know, for those who might have already felt uncomfortable about snakes to now um, just find out that they basically walk their skulls over their prey uh, adds another layer of apprehension. Okay, so we've got this basic skull plan and it varies by different groups of animals. But um, but within each group, there also seems to be so much variation, you know, like you were just talking about with the snakes and the birds and and all all the sort of special adaptations they have for for getting the job done, you know, in terms of eating or other things. And and I'm wondering, is that why there's so much variation? Yes. So I think the variation, so in terms of, we talked about reptiles and birds and they're different depending upon what they do. And I think, I think you mentioned a woodpecker before, and they have these amazing skulls, you know, that can take all this force from their like hammering, their jack hammering into a piece of wood. But in mammals, the other thing that really differentiates um, skulls is um, whether that animal eats meat or whether it eats plants that can make the skull completely different depending upon what they eat. Okay. Yeah. I actually have, um, an interlude called kids don't try this at home, uh, for the listeners. And it is about woodpeckers today. So I'm really glad you mentioned that about their skulls because I'm going to talk about that. Uh, but I'm wondering, are, are there specific parts of the skull, uh, that change more than others as we, as we look at different species? 
Yes. So especially if we're talking about mammals, the parts of the skull that really change um, include the teeth, of course. The teeth are going to be different depending upon what the animal eats. Um, I would say the area behind the eye is going to change quite a bit depending upon what the animal eats. Um, and then in animals that breathe underwater, um, they actually have a totally different kind of palate than animals that breathe air on land. Because as you know, animals who breathe underwater, they don't use their mouth for breathing. They only use it for eating because they breathe with their gills. But animals that breathe on land have to be able to eat and breathe at the same time. So they have to have a different passageway for air. And those animals have a totally different palate than okay. animals underwater. Okay, so basically if you're on land, you spend your whole life trying to figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, yes. (laughs) Okay, so if I were to look at two different skulls, which I'm actually looking at two different skulls right now. One is from a deer and the other is from a cat, actually my cat Midnight, who died some time ago. Um, and in fact, the, the deer actually was killed by another cat, just a, a much larger cat, a mountain lion. And so what parts, if I'm looking at these two skulls from two really different animals, uh, one that is not a predator and, and one that is a predator, what, what parts are going to give me the most information to tell me... W- what kind of animal it is and how it, um, how it earns its living. So the main differences between that deer and midnight, number one are going to be its teeth. So midnight's going to have these pointy teeth, basically for shearing meat. Midnight doesn't do a lot of processing of meat. So midnight basically grabbed a piece of meat, um, and then cut it up like scissors and then swallowed it. Whereas deer are going to have teeth that are made for grinding They've really got to grind up that food in order to get it small enough for the bacteria in their gut to work on it. So their teeth are going to look very different. But going along with how they chew that food, the other major difference between midnight and the deer is going to be the space behind their eye socket. So in a carnivore like midnight, they don't do a lot of chewing, but they have to be very fast at closing their jaw. And the muscle that's really good at fast closing is called the temporalis muscle. And it basically sits in the area behind your eye up on your skull. So carnivores have a large area for the temporalis, whereas the deer are going to have that repetitive chewing motion. They don't need to do anything fast because grass doesn't run away, but they have to be tough and they have to be strong to grind that grass down. And the muscle that's really good at doing that is the masseter which sits right on your lower jaw. So basically the deer is going to have a much larger lower jaw and midnight is going to have a much larger area behind her eye. That's exactly right. And I'm looking at them right now and I'll post, um, I'll post pictures up in the show notes so folks can see what we're talking about. But you mentioned, uh, teeth are really important. And, um, and so that, that actually got me curious You know, I'm wondering uh, for people like in your profession, uh, vertebrate paleontologists uh, and even lay people, they may come across teeth uh, or or fine teeth, like say shark teeth. And I'm wondering why are teeth such a good find for for scientists like you and why do they tend to stick around longer than other bits? So that's a great question. Teeth are really important because we get a lot of information from them. So we can obviously tell whether an animal is a carnivore or an herbivore from their teeth. And if they're an herbivore, we can actually tell whether they were eating tough, hard uh, vegetation like grasses, or if they were eating softer vegetation like leaves. Um, We can even tell if an animal eats fruit from their teeth. Also, we can tell a a little bit from tooth wear about how old the animal is. So they can give us a really good idea of, you know, how old the animal was, what kind of habitat it lived in, what it did for a living. So there's a lot of information there. And then in response to your second question about why teeth uh, fossilize so well, why are they so commonly found? That's a really good question, too. And the reason is because of tooth enamel. 
So we have tooth enamel on our teeth. You know, you may um, go to your dentist and they tell you, you know, that your enamel is weak or that you need to build up your enamel. But enamel is actually the hardest substance in the human body and also in animal bodies. And it's so hard and so impenetrable that, you know, when an animal fossilizes, most of its bones are replaced by other minerals, but the enamel is so hard that it's never replaced by other minerals, which actually makes it a really great substance to do chemical analyses on to find out uh, what that animal might have eaten in the past or what kind of environment it lived in. That's really neat. And I mean, I, I think what a, what a great profession you have, you know, all, and look at all the mysteries that you get to solve. Um, in fact, we're going to talk about some of those mysteries in a minute. But first, I want to talk about eye sockets. Now, you mentioned that there were differences uh, in the space behind the eye sockets and, and that that varied, uh, say, whether something was a, a predator, you know, like midnight or uh, an herbivore like the deer, but I'm also noticing differences in the size um, and and the positioning of the eye sockets. Uh, so, so what is that all about? I'll talk about the positioning first, because that one's a pretty straightforward answer. So, for example, like on midnight, um, the eye sockets face forward. And that's the same for us and for other primates. And eye sockets that face forward basically give you either what we call binocular or stereoscopic vision. And that vision is excellent for depth perception. So for midnight, it was really good for judging where that mouse was so she could go after it. Um, in us and other animals that came from ancestors who lived in trees, it's really good to be able to judge how high you are, you know, how high you have to climb or how far you have to go down so that you don't fall down um, <laughs> yeah. out of a tree. That, that's a good thing. And then the animals that have eyes on the side of their head, like the deer, basically this gives them an almost 360 degree view of their surroundings. They have a couple of little blind spots, you know, one obviously in the back of their head, but one right in front, like right between their eyes, but everything else is visible. And this is really good for animals that basically stand around and eat grass all day, but they have to be vigilant that they don't become somebody's dinner. Um, and that's what that really big view is for. Okay. So a couple things here. Um, clearly the deer that is sitting on my shelf, uh, did not see the mountain lion coming, uh, or if he did, um, and it is a he because uh, it had antlers, so it's a male uh, deer. If, if he did see the mountain lion coming, he clearly did not get away fast enough. And, and something you said reminded me of a little saying, eyes in the front, ready to hunt, eyes on the side, ready to hide or, or time to hide. Um, is, is, that about, is that about right? Yeah, I mean, more or less, that is that is correct. And I would say eyes on the side. I mean, that's a great that's a great, you know, mnemonic to remember it. I would say eyes on the side, ready to eat. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny because some people uh, think that squirrels are just not smart because they get hit by cars all the time. But the reality is that um, their eyes are on the side of their head. So their depth perception or their ability to tell the speed of the car coming towards them is is really compromised. I would say that's probably pretty accurate. I mean, squirrels also do crazy things to me. Like they make their, they change their mind at the last minute and then like run across the road when you're like, no, don't <laughs> do that. Just, you know, set your mind on one side and go for it. Right. Um, it's kind of like, why did the squirrel cross the road? It decided not to. Um, <laughs> yes, but I would say that's probably accurate. <laughs> so true. You know, I just saw one today that uh, met its demise after being hit by a car and some turkey vultures were making a good meal out of it. And, you know, I'm going to talk about turkey vultures and other recyclers in a future episode. But right now you, you had mentioned earlier that you became fascinated with saber toothed tigers. And I know that you've done some research on them. Uh, what were you what were you able to determine about their lifestyle um, from their skulls? Um, that's, yeah, a lot, actually. So um, we can tell 
they, they are different from living cats. I mean, the, just the setup of some of their, their holes and openings are a little bit different than other cats. So for example, they have got these really big um, holes in the side of their face, um, right on either side of their nose for where the whiskers go in. And one of the things that we think is going on is that they've really got to be able to tell exactly where an animal is positioned with their whiskers before they use their big saber teeth. You have to be really, really careful with them because they're so fragile in the side to side direction that they have to be like applied, you know, like a syringe and then immediately removed um, in order to, to hunt. And so we think that with a combination of their hands and their faces, they basically push prey down and then they take a very quick bite at the at the throat in order to um, basically, you know, get the carotid or the jugulars or some major artery to make the animal bleed out. And then once the animal has expired, then they begin, um, you know, defleshing the animal in, in multiple different places. And their incisors actually stick out much further than in other cats. And we think that is basically so, you know, they can get their mouth in there with those big saber teeth to begin, you know, defleshing that animal. So, wow. I mean, I I didn't realize that their saber teeth would be so fragile. That's that's fascinating. Um, How do how do we know that? Um, we know that just from doing some physics experiments. So there were some papers that came out actually by my dissertation advisor and one of her colleagues that looked at the mechanics of round teeth, which is what modern cats have, and these these side to side or mediolaterally compressed canines um, and and realized that. Um, Front to back, the canines are really sturdy, but side to side, they're really weak. And so it must have been that they were using them in sort of a pull forward and pull back direction rather than what living cats do, which is grab hold of prey and hold on for dear life while they choke it to death. Um, They they couldn't have been doing that or they would have broken their teeth. Right. And, And then, well, they probably would have gone extinct a lot faster than they did. Right. Before we get our take on eye sockets, it's time for a little interlude I like to call Kids, Don't Try This at Home, the wonder of the special talents of other animals. Since we're talking about skulls today, it only makes sense to talk about woodpeckers for a moment. Woodpeckers are incredible birds. There are many varieties with different social behaviors, feeding strategies, and lots of variation in their physical appearance. I know when I'm seeing a woodpecker based on the way that they fly. One thing they have in common, regardless of the species, is a really strong skull. Essentially, they have the best helmet for the job. In their skull, they have bony structures called trabeculae that create a spongy bony mesh around their head. Their beak also contains a lot of these and they act as shock absorbers, mitigating the blow every time they strike. Another adaptation they have are thick muscles to reduce the impact. And since we're focused on eye sockets in this episode, it's important to mention that their eyes don't pop right out of their skull because they have a third eyelid that helps keep it in place. Together, these adaptations prevent serious injury, injury that you or I would surely sustain if we went around banging our heads against trees all day long. Remember, don't try this at home. Researchers are using all of this information to think about how to redesign helmets and other headgear to better protect our fragile brains. How fragile are our brains? Well, compared to woodpeckers, we have a wimpy capacity to withstand force. Gravitational force, or g-force, is a measure of acceleration. Now, 1g is the Earth's gravitational force, or gravity, and why we're not just floating around. It would be kind of fun. But anyway, back to skulls, g-forces, and woodpeckers. A woodpecker's skull can withstand 1,200 to 1,400 times the force of gravity without sustaining a concussion. Us, on the other hand, 
about 60. Now, this doesn't mean that woodpeckers escape all injury. A study in 2018 concluded that the same protein that is evidence of brain damage in people builds up over time in the brains of woodpeckers. It might turn out to be another adaptation and that the protein actually protects the brain of woodpeckers. It's hard to say yet, but scientists are trying to crack the mystery. This was the inspiration for the art that I made for this episode. So don't forget to check it out with the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. Back to skulls and eye sockets. So, so what about the eye sockets in particular on uh, saber, saber tooth cats? So, I mean, in, in general, saber tooth cats don't have anything really special with their eye sockets that modern cats have, or, you know, there's no, there's no big difference. So generally we think that saber tooth cats probably hunted, you know, at the same time of day that modern cats did. And that kind of varies depending upon the cat, but most big cats like lions and tigers, um, hunt during the day. Uh, and so sometimes eye socket size can depend upon uh, what time of day these animals hunt. And in case of, in the case of midnight, um, modern cats uh, or little house cats are actually what we call crepuscular, which means that they're active at dusk and dawn. And a lot of people will verify this um, by when <laughs> their cats wake them up to eat. Yes. Um, and so they need to be able to have eyes big enough to function in a relatively low light environment. And that is true for a lot of carnivores. Um, in the case of saber tooth cats though, their eye sockets are small enough that I would guess that they were like big lions or tigers and that they mostly hunted during the day. Okay, so that's really fascinating. Now, um, I have a little theory I wanna run by you. So in researching for the show, I discovered that in many felids like domestic cats and mountain lions, which are also crepuscular, they have discovered that there's many more genes in these species uh, for, for eyesight than say a fox, which are also nocturnal. And, you know, it seems like uh, canids rely more heavily on scent to hunt, whereas um, cats uh, have a poorer sense of smell, at least, well, at least mountain lions do. And for mountain lions, <clears throat> it could be that that because they're eating something over several days, um, you know, like like this mountain lion did with the deer. And and I can tell you, uh, having discovered the remains, um, it, the smell was so horrible. I I mean, <laughs> it makes me gag still just thinking about it when I went to go retrieve the skull and the spine after it had been picked clean, of course, because uh, a little a little PSA for our listeners: you never want to be anywhere near the remains of a mountain lion kill because it might be feeding on it for for several days. And they don't take kindly to anyone being near their meal. But but since they scavenge quite a bit, um, not being able to smell really well seems like that would come in pretty handy. So then their their vision would be highly developed because that's their primary mode of of hunting. And then that would explain why their eye sockets are so big. So what do you think? So I think that your hypothesis on eye size might be correct, but with smell, I have to remind you that any carnivore is going to have a better sense of smell than we do. So they're really going to be able to pick up a lot more nuance in their environment than we could with our noses. And so they probably just aren't as disgusted by the smell of carcass as you are, is my guess. I mean, my dogs like anything stinky. They love it. It, it excites them. So, um, yeah. but I do think with the eyes that you, you may be correct there in that mountain lions, for example, and other cats are much more visual hunters than dogs. Dogs really are much more um, scent scent oriented hunters. So I think that cats may have bigger eye sockets in general than dogs because they are sight oriented hunters. Okay. Okay. So, so what we've established here, uh, we've established a couple of things. One, uh, I have a stomach of tinfoil while a mountain lion has a stomach of steel. 
<laughs> or maybe they just, you know, it, it could just be that they just love that smell, right? Oh. I mean, like, we love the smell of mint, for example, or lavender. And I'm guessing that cats and dogs probably think that smells like poop to them. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, well, so then the other thing that we've established uh, or been able to discern is that I'm on to something, but you are an expert in ice age uh, carnivores and and you've actually studied both felids and canids. So is there is there anything that you've noticed um, in terms of the eye socket size relative to the skull? Um, any patterns that you've noticed across those two groups? So, you know, I, I've got to say that I haven't really paid that much attention to it. So I, I can't say that I, I have, although I think you're right. I mean, just in my general observations of cats versus dogs, cats generally have larger eye sockets than, than dogs do. And I think a lot of that, you're right, is due to visual acuity. But, you know, when you think of something like some animal that actually doesn't use their sight at all. So think of something like a mole, right? right. Like they are blind. They still have a pretty big eye socket. So, you know, uh, you could probably have some, some evolutionary hold over there, um, in terms of socket size. Okay. Well, darn, I I'm feeling my hypothesis go out the window. <laughs> I mean, out the fenestra. So, so speaking of your research, you've been part of, uh, some really exciting uh, uh, discoveries lately, um, some breakthroughs, really. And, and there's two in particular. So first, well, well, actually, I don't know which one to talk about first because I'm, I'm pretty darn excited to talk about both of them. One is on the dire wolf and the other is on this uh, mummified uh, ancient wolf puppy that was found up in the Yukon. Um, that is, I think they named it Zur, and it's between 56 and 58,000 years old. So please fill us in on, on both of these, um, whichever one you want to tackle first. Sure. So let's, let's talk about Zur. Zur is, uh, like you said, a 57,000-year-old mummy. She is a wolf pup who was between six to eight weeks old when she died. And she was found in the Yukon in July of 2016 by a gold miner named Neil Loveless, who used a water cannon to blast the permafrost. So that's basically how they mine for gold. They shoot this water cannon. And when I say water cannon, think of like a fire hydrant, right? That's untethered mm -hmm. or a, a hose from a, you know, a fire hydrant, like a fireman would use at this hillside. And this thing fell out and he was just like, what is this? And he went to look at it and it looked like a puppy. And he thought it was actually somebody's dog that had died about a hundred years ago. So there was a lot of gold mining that went on in the Yukon in the, in the late 1800s. So he thought it was like somebody's dog from that time period. But when the paleontologists came out, they looked at it and they were like, whoa, this is cool. And when we did a radiocarbon date on it, it came back as older than 50,000 years. So we knew that it was beyond the scope of what radiocarbon can date. So that was really interesting. And we did a whole bunch of analyses on her. So we looked at her ancient DNA and we looked at her isotopes in her teeth and hair. Um, so we mentioned that before, but basically what we found from all of that is that she is generally related to the wolves that were around in the last ice age, which believe it or not, are not very closely related to the wolves we have around today. They're the same species, but they're, they're about as far apart as any one species could be before they're not the same species. And her, her uh, molecular clock from her ancient DNA, um, we were able to get an estimate of how old she was and from her isotopes, from her hair and her nails and her teeth, we were able to establish that she is somewhere between um, 56 and 58,000 years old. 
Wow. Uh, okay. So I want to give a, uh, a brief explanation of molecular clock, which is something that, that we use in biology and in evolution, which is uh, basically a way of describing uh, how fast we accumulate mutations in our DNA. Would that, would that be a, a good, simple way of describing it? Yes, and you can use that along with relationships to other species to figure out when they split evolutionarily. Right. So, so the way to build the family tree is not from uh, our paper records, but from our genetic records. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So we've got this wolf puppy, this female wolf puppy on the family tree and she's about 57,000 years old. And, you know, I've seen a picture of this, um, and I'll post a picture in the show notes, but all her teeth are there. And, and I'm guessing that those are baby teeth. They are. And they look really big. It's really funny. Actually, after the paper came out, I had several people email me incredulous that those were baby teeth. But, but so, I mean, don't wolf puppies, um, even after they're done nursing and they're transitioning, they have baby teeth, right? So, so as they're transitioning to meat, they've got to have a set of functioning teeth, right? Yes. And they are actually weaned. Wolf puppies are weaned by the time they're five weeks old. So that means that mom is done with them on the teat <laughs> and they are only eating uh, meat. They're only eating regurgitated meat and meat uh, that the mom brings them from a kill. That's incredible. What an exciting find and, and how awesome that you were able to do all of these different analyses and, and tell us something about this little female wolf puppy Zor. And and you and I talked a couple of years ago about another wolf, um, the Beringian wolf. And, um, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes where folks can go watch the YouTube video we made and learn about that research. So, so Zur is a Beringian wolf, just oh. FYI. So she is a Beringian wolf. That's exactly the kind of wolf she is. Oh, fantastic. Um, and okay. So listeners, you can watch this YouTube video on Wild Connection TV and get a little bit about the history uh, of this research that you've done, Julie, on on identifying Beringian wolves as a completely new species of wolf. And now finding this, I mean, that had to be really exciting for you. Yeah, I, you know, it wasn't totally unexpected because what we found is that all the wolves that are in that area, Alaska, the Yukon, um, uh, that northern Canadian region, Siberia, they're all, they're all Beringian wolves, so they're all related to each other. Okay. Well, that's really neat. Now, uh, you're also, you've also been in the news lately for another discovery. Um, and this time about dire wolves, tell us what, well, first, uh, tell us what is a dire wolf and then tell us what you discovered. So that's a great question. So most people know dire wolves from the show Game of Thrones, but I should tell you that dire wolves are real. They existed in the last ice age. Um, they went extinct about 12,000 years ago. Uh, they are a native North American canid or dog, and they really don't like the cold. So the depiction of dire wolves in Game of Thrones was totally wrong um, <laughs> because, you know, they lived in, in you know, in Winterfell, where it's always cold, but these wolves actually prefer much more temperate climates. And they were wolves that specialized on eating the megafauna. So big extinct things like, you know, mammoths and bison and horses and camels that lived in North America in the last ice age. Um, and they're really well known from a site in Los Angeles called the Rancho La Brea Tar Pits. And it's funny that you mentioned a wall of skulls earlier, because one of the things that they have on exhibit at the Tar Pits Museum is actually an entire wall of direwolf skulls. Oh, wow. So it's like hundreds of direwolf skulls because there have been thousands of them found there. So uh, the one thing about the, the dogs and the, the direwolves at the Tar Pits is that Somehow the tar makes it impossible for us to get genetic material out of these animals. So even though we have thousands of these specimens there, 
we have never gotten DNA out of the dire wolf before until now. Um, so we basically scoured the country looking for samples of dire wolves that we could possibly get ancient DNA out of. And it turns out we found about nine specimens total across North America. Um, and they were all analyzed in different labs across the world. And I guess the one thing that I really brought to the project, other than my morphological expertise of wolves, is that I was the link between all the different labs doing this project. So everybody came to me for my morphological expertise. And I was the one who realized that like two or three different labs were working on this simultaneously. And I brought them together to make one big paper instead of multiple small papers. And what we found is really incredible. So throughout time, paleontologists have thought that dire wolves were the most closely related to the living gray wolf. And this is because of the similarity in their skulls and their bones. So they look so similar in their skulls and bones that we assumed that dire wolves were most closely related to gray wolves. And this has basically been what we've made all our, our assumptions on. And we have used these assumptions to inform our ecological reconstructions of dire wolves, um, the biology of dire wolves, all of this. Well, what the genetic data has told us is that dire wolves, despite the fact that they look like gray wolves in their body form, are not related to gray wolves at all. Basically, we found that dire wolves are located outside all modern canis, all modern dogs, and they're kind of stuck between the, the foxes that live in Patagonia that are their own weird thing and all the other big dogs that live all around the world. So if we had to pick one dog that was most closely related to the dire wolf, it would be the group that included the jackals and the doles, which wow. are, yeah, a dog that live in India. So this revelation basically made us realize that we've probably been doing illustrations of the dire wolf completely wrong for a century. <laughs> so we actually commissioned um, this guy, Mauricio Anton, who is a brilliant paleontologist and a brilliant artist to reconstruct the dire wolf for us with this new knowledge. And he has painted this amazing painting, which I can send to you that you can post up on, um, on your show notes if you want. Yes. Um, but it's also, it's also in the New York Times article that came out about the dire wolf um, on the 13th of January. So if you Google New York Times dire wolf, that painting will also come up there. Okay, so so there's a couple of things to unpack here, um, and then I promise I will wrap up and let you get back to uh, all the amazing science that you're doing because I could talk to you for hours, and you know we may have to have you um, back on, but. A couple things jumped out at me. One is that, um, well, skulls and bones can lie, apparently. They can sometimes. At least they can. So they can actually have convergent evolution, meaning they start from two totally separate points in, you know, on the family tree, and then they can evolve towards each other. And that can actually give us, you know, that as humans, we can't distinguish between things that look alike because they're related and things that look alike because they do the same thing. That's right. Because sometimes there's many ways to solve the same problem. And sometimes there's the best way to solve the problem and everybody converges on that solution. So I'm curious first, I'm okay. Gosh, there's so many things I want to ask. Um, First, uh, the ancient DNA. Um, okay, so I am not a DNA expert, but my impression is that the reason it's so hard to get DNA out of uh, fossils is because the DNA has degraded and usually you can uh, only find it either in the marrow or if you have a mummified specimen or even I think sometimes even in the teeth. So, so can you tell us um, what part what part of the body uh, did the DNA come from that was used for this analysis? 
So actually one of the bones that they love to use is this little bone in the ear called the petrosal bone. And it's called petrosal because the, the Greek word for rock is petrus. Mm-hmm. And it is harder than any other bone except for teeth. And so because it's so hard and it actually encapsulates the three little ear ossicles, so it's got extra little bones in there, it's one of the best bones to preserve ancient DNA. So several of the samples came from petrous bones. I think a few of them came from tooth roots, like you said, with that, you know, it's got remnants of the pulp cavity left in there. And then um, actually one of the specimens came from fossilized poop from a cave in Tennessee. So it was basically a coprolite, which is the, the scientific name for fossilized poop, that we assumed was going to be direwolf based on the size and form. And it turned out we were correct. Whoa. So I have a, an episode coming up uh, later in the season called Better Out Than In, and it's all about excretions. So I think I'm going to have to get a little blurb from you because I just learned that poop fossilizes, and I did not know that. So along with all the other fascinating things about poop, um, I'm even more excited now than ever to do that show. Thank you so much, Dr. Meechen, for uh, talking with me about skulls and bones and trying to solve this mystery of eye sockets and for sharing with the listeners all of the exciting research that you're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. There you have it. It's possible that the bigger the eye sockets, the better the vision. And next time you see a woodpecker, banging its head like a jackhammer around 12,000 times a day, say thanks, because they may just help design the next generation of -of state-of-the-art headgear that will protect our fragile skulls and brains from damage. Thanks for listening, everyone, and tune in next week for an exciting episode with Dr. Kenny Travillon. He helps explain the never-ending rave party that's happening with the -the glow-in-the-dark marsupials in Australia. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe so you never miss an episode.